0: Hi everyone, welcome to episode seven of Dark Mode. Could you imagine starting a role as the chief security officer at a global industry leading cybersecurity technology company, then two months later, your company is in the media for being hacked by a notorious adversarial group? Well, in this episode, Ben and I have the pleasure of sitting down with Brett Winterford, the regional CISO for Okta and we embark on an empathetic, insightful, and awe-inspiring journey to discuss the insider's view of experiencing and managing such a complex event. We also speak about misinformation warfare, the effects of oversensationalized media, the resilience of incident responders, and Brett has perhaps one of the best dark mode stories shared to date, recounting his 11-year stint commercialising a factory next to Central Station in Sydney without approval, hosting a 14-year-old Ed Sheeran and evangelising the music and arts industry in his previous life. Brett's cool demeanour brings great insights into the life of a cybersecurity leader, offering up a great example of transferable skill sets in our profession, having been a pioneering security journalist, cyber strategist And now of course, the chief security officer at Okta. Amazing. Brett, thanks for joining us in dark mode.
1: Thanks for having me, Gabe. Looking forward to the chat.
0: Yeah. I appreciate you've just also flown in from a trip to Japan over on the West coast.
1: You can see the, uh, the red eyes probably, but yeah, I'm pretty fun uh, getting to travel again at the moment, but the, uh, the airlines and the whole travel industry is still very much in recovery. So it's a bit of an ordeal at the moment.
0: No, I can imagine. Well, we appreciate your time and I'm particularly looking forward to this conversation too, because you're into the role at Okta as the regional chief security officer for the Asia-Pacific Japan region. And of course, there's been the lapsus incident recently. I crossed paths with you at AusCert in the last couple of weeks. And of course, Ben and I have been pretty familiar with the Okta technology. And so I'm pretty stoked to hear about your experiences and actually how this conversation unfolds in the next hour. So did you want to actually open up to the audience, just your story and where you've come from and what brought you here today?
1: Yeah, as you mentioned, APJ, Security Officer for Okta. I've been with Okta for about 14 or 15 months. I only came into this role in January. I was in, in an internal sub strategy role, working with the global CISO prior to this and doing a bunch of outreach work on for the global office. And as you mentioned, I, I live over on the best coast um, of <laughs> Australia and uh, And the hours of doing a global role from here can sometimes uh, be a bit taxing on a young family. So I've moved over into this APJ role and I couldn't be happier. I've just had my first kind of bit of a tour of the region, uh, both virtual and physical, and and yeah, it's super exciting for me. The role basically involves any time an Okta customer or an Okta prospect or anyone of that nature needs to understand a little more about our security and and hear about it firsthand from someone in in the security team. And that can be as banal as making inquiries, uh, handling inquiries from it the supply governance perspective through to when one of our customers wants to put me in front of their stakeholders to, to talk about themes in the security industry or, or something specific to Okta and identity. So yeah, super fun role. Prior to this, I've bounced for over 20 years between writing about technology as a journalist and working in the field. So I was a journalist for 15 years or so across most of the titles you'd be familiar with reading here in Australia and metropolitan newspapers and the like. I got my first break into actually working in cybersecurity in 2014 under a fellow named Ben Hayes, who was the CSO at Commonwealth Bank. And he brought me in to do a whole bunch of work on government policy, security awareness, skills development, a whole bunch of these areas that I guess your, your average computer science graduate doesn't necessarily have all the right um, skills. And and that was just a real blessing because it's just opened up for me from there. I went into a global role managing security awareness and AppSec, at, uh, AppSec education at um, Symantec. And then did a stint with uh, risky business, the risky business podcast. I'm um, sure if you're familiar with those guys, with Pat and, and Madeline, those guys. Second and then, podcast about. That. And then, and then jumped, um, and then jumped to Okta, yeah, to perform this role. So yeah, feel very blessed to have found my way into cybersecurity. It wasn't a plan. I used to write about it. I wrote about enterprise technology generally. And then there was a period of time where, where I just couldn't stop writing about security. It just seemed to take off as a, as an area of concern. And yeah, it's captured my interest ever since.
0: Nice. When was that, Brett, that decided to really take off?
1: I want to say as much as it's disappointing to a lot of people in in the infosec, the first time that the the broader public got a real insight into cybersecurity was probably the Snowden revelations for a lot of people. Yeah. It's kind of, it's a bit, it's a shame that was their first insight, but it was the first time that the, the work of the Offensive security community and the intelligence community came out of the shadows a bit because all of the folks in the Intel community had to contend with the fact there was a whole bunch of information now in the public domain and they needed to address a lot of misconceptions. And it, I, I guess that kind of opened up for a lot of people in the technology sector. The, the degree to which cybersecurity was going to become, you know, such an important issue, almost like of, of a geopolitical nature, you know, let alone just uh day-to-day securing our organization. So. Yeah, that kind of captured my interest, and in, and in, and from there, I guess the volume and severity of cybersecurity events that that really do shape the world has only has only amplified since then.
0: Yeah, absolutely. There's a thing there too about the value of information, and I think as you described in the Snowden revelations, really for the first time, all of that information that was once really only attributed to those intelligence communities or the government agencies did now become public knowledge and it's opened up almost the imagination of the general population, just what is actually happening. And as technologists and professional practitioners, we gravitate now into that world and I understand that too, with the military background and withholding information and Ben and I even spoke on a previous in, previous episode around censorship, military censorship. And it comes down to the protection of again, that information or the protection of data and on a need to know basis. So I actually see there's a lot of convergence happening across all of those domains and across all those types of information. So information security, it's a very interesting time for sure.
1: Yeah, it is interesting, isn't it? Because I think they were they're were all very siloed um, areas, whereas now It's not uncommon in cybersecurity that you work alongside people that have worked across all of those different domains and and have a different set of interests and and in their past and a different perspective on things. And that's something that that I particularly enjoyed is that I guess it's a space where, where where now the conversation is a lot more open. It's had to be a lot more open and it's, I think it's what, while we have a lot of, there are a lot of, that raises a lot of issues. So we have disinformation being pretty rife and we have, we have a lot of opinions about cybersecurity that aren't very qualified. But at the same time, all of these different communities starting to talk the same language is a pretty, pretty interesting phenomenon.
2: The, the Snowden piece to me, it it brought transparency and perspective to cybersecurity as an entire realm or a domain of digital warfare. And for me, it was a great conversation that needed to be had because it brought to light a lot of defensive conversations as a result of the offensive nature of the leaks from Snowden. Uh, yeah, that's okay. a great,
1: that's a great point without, without, without having more open conversations about offensive security techniques, we could never really evolve defense.
2: That's right. And that's for me where I saw the shift in conversation going from, uh, cybersecurity as the hacker mentality, it was the offensive side and I hate, I hate stereotyping all hackers in that umbrella because there is a whole different raft of, of hacking that evolves beyond the, the hoodie in the dark room and the led keyboards, but. It really brought to the conversation, the requirement for defensive posture, security strategy, and it opened that conversation. And that for me is one where I looked at it and thought this is going to become commercialized and it became commercialized really quickly.
1: Yeah. I think another trigger moment for that for me was not picture. Yeah. Just in the sense that it was so targeted, it was a political message being sent to a particular country and anyone who was doing business in that country had flow on effects. If they had a, you know, a global flat network, it meant that they would suffer the consequences of having some operations in Ukraine at the time. And it just, that was a real eye-opener for me. There were several events of that nature where you realised that this wasn't just about profit motivated actors trying to commit some, some form of fraud, but that there was a larger set of concerns that I guess a lot of the people I was speaking to at the time, i from, I was at Commonwealth bank handling outreach programs to our institutional customers at the time, which is the large customers of the bank and helping them with their sub security strategy. And a lot of them just didn't feel like they could ever be a target and trying to, trying to show them that what business they were in and where they chose to do business was as much a factor of whether they would be targeted as anything else. And while a lot of them didn't see the the potential, it was always there.
0: Was there any reason they had attitudes in that sense, Brett, do you think?
1: I think that unless you have experienced something of that nature or one of your peers has experienced something of that nature, it's never really that real to you. It feels like something you read in the newspapers. You can read it every day in the newspapers and it still doesn't feel real when I think, yeah, when you're in the middle of the crisis, you certainly feel it um, in a very different way. And I I think it's probably with the rise of, of a human operated somewhere as a phenomenon in the last kind of three or four years, that's probably the next step change again, where Everyone now knows someone has been involved in one of those incidents. So it's become a lot more real. Yeah. So I think it's just, yeah, it's been that kind of over the time that we've been in the industry, the three of us, it's just kind of, it's just, it's it's become a lot more, it's become a lot more uh, tangible for folks that have been in, that have been on the boards of companies for 30 and 40 years, but it's only in the
2: last few years that it's really become quite tangible for them.
0: Far, far more proliferated now. Absolutely.
2: Yep. Hey Brett, just before we bounce onto another, I know Gabe's ready to launch into another one, but h- how did you navigate that conversation with those customers without prefacing it with fear mongering? Gabe and I talk a lot yep. about how we've done a great job in the industry of, of providing a fear mongering mentality to drive the mm-hmm. conversation, but we, we need to shift from that we're doing a good job of shifting at the moment, but we're now playing catch up with some of the work we've done previously. Uh, so I'm interested to hear how you navigated that conversation for organizations that didn't believe it would be in there. It, it wouldn't yeah. be proliferated in their environment without trying to put fear mongering in place.
1: I think the, um, the way I would usually start with them was to talk about the most, the most high, like high likelihood, low, sorry. Yeah. High likelihood, but low impact events that would, that would, that would probably touch them. So I usually focused a lot on business or compromise and ransomware as the threats that, that are fairly commonplace and that some fairly basic aspects of hygiene can address. So I wouldn't be talking about boxes with blinking lights. I'd be talking about how they process payments. I'd be talking about how they have their backup. So I talk about the, some of these things that are quite, quite simple, but that's how I would approach it typically. And then just move the conversation along over time into having them think about the more severe consequences from other type of incidents. But yeah, I always started with things that are quite the, that, that are the low hanging fruit for organizations that even though they might have significant scale and significant revenues. They might have one person in security, if they're lucky, a lot of these organizations, particularly back in 2014, usually it was, it was like the network manager had a side gig as having to worry about cyber. Yeah. yeah. So it was like trying to get the senior stakeholders to realize that they needed over time to develop a plan. And I would, I would just use the journey of, of my own organization to map out a path for how to get there. And you can't just build a large sophisticated security function in the course of a week. But uh, so it was about helping them mitigate mitigate against some of the common issues with having a longer term view of what am I gonna, what are the kind of capabilities I'm gonna need to have in the next few years, given the deteriorating threat environment.
0: Yeah, we hosted a customer event just last week, Brett. And again, it's the, some of the, particularly the smaller organizations or the mid-sized organizations in Australia, they've got the IT leadership at the table. And they're like, we're getting scrutinized more and more every day because of increasing infosec requirements from our customers. It's like, how do I keep pace with that as a non-security expert, but as the leader of this technology function with the responsibility back to my business and to my external stakeholders, it's like those, they're, they're really increasing from a, from a requirement perspective, but also an expectation perspective, and then let alone the complex and ever-changing nature of what security entails. So it's a very key point for sure.
1: I don't know. I don't know how they do it sometimes. Like the folks that run one and two person security teams for hospital networks or universities, and you sit there and you go, all right, I'm used to working now in teams with 100 plus security professionals, you Now with huge specialization and you the complexity of the environment is high and the handoffs create extra com- complexity. But when you look at networks of tens of thousands of untrusted users, yeah. um, and very minimal resources to work with so, some of these people that, how they get up in the morning and, and continue to, to fight the fight just astounds me that
2: they're, they're at night, Yeah. I mean, they're okay. never bored. Are they? Yeah,
0: yeah. yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Hey Brett, before I wanted to actually just unwind a little more about your background in, was it security journalism? Yeah, 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 amazing. And now you've moved into really a field CISO role at a very leading technology company. So speaking oftentimes around key themes in the industry, I'm really keen to hear from your perspective, what was most interesting when you were writing about security and now coming into the CISO leadership position? Is there anything that's common ground there? Anything that really flicked a switch or?
1: trying to think back at it's a long way now, other than the risky business experience, it's a long way back to when I was writing about, about security. Often the risky business experience was super interesting in, in the sense that. Patrick Gray, actually the host of the show said to me before I came on, it takes a full time job for someone to do a halfway decent job of being able to, of being able to map the, the trends that actually matter to defenders and that we have, we have huge threat intelligence teams for this purpose, but even just going on the on what information is public domain. The volume of information is huge and the volume of noise takes up most of that. And uh, it's very difficult to distill it down for, for people in infosec, just what mattered this week. Mm. And so I started this, this newsletter with with him where where we tried to distill down what mattered over the week. Get to the crux of what does it mean for your strategy? And at the, and at the time, like uh, this is 20. 2020 kind of period, we had the, the huge shift to remote work and the massive emphasis of, of security researchers hammering away at devices on the edge of the network and just the volume of high and critical um, vulnerabilities being published at that time and the way in which they were then being weaponized quickly and used in for for attacking at scale mm. was absolutely phenomenal and, and being able to, I really enjoyed in, in that environment, being able to map, map a trend in, in a bit of detail, but also be able to figure out what should we be telling people to do about it? That was really fun. And sometimes those skills are transferable into a role like mine. Being able to, not probably sounding particularly articulate today, being able to sit down with, with a, a chief security officer or one of their stakeholders and map out how attacks are changing and and the way in which they need to accommodate them is, is funnily enough. A, a skill that you'd never probably think to look to a journalist for, but I've often said to other folks that write about security in the industry that they probably undervalue what this the skill set that they've developed. A lot of folks think, "Who else would want to hire me? I'm, I'm a journalist. Journalists don't get paid very much, et cetera. And they probably don't realize that they're sitting on they're sitting on some skills that that are quite useful.
0: Yeah, for sure. It's almost like the untapped workforce, the untapped talent pools. Trans, tra- looking at the transferable skill sets is. Really valuable for sure.
1: Yeah, that's just one example. There is so many yeah. others in there,
0: like folks are yeah.
2: great educators folks that are
1: great educators. To me, we need more of them in our industry.
2: Yeah, but the beauty of cybersecurity, right? It's a melting pot of a whole raft of different experiences, different you know professional experiences, personal experiences, but everyone brings something unique to the industry, and it's the only industry I've been a part of that welcomes that open up wholeheartedly. It's less about your certification criteria. It's more about what experiences have you got? How can you then impart that into the industry and deliver value? For me, Brett, it's your communication skills as a journalist is what has, you know, driven success for you to date. No, we, we listened to a, (laughs) forgive me for a keynote at Ozzert and the way you delivered that with a finite amount of time translates directly to when you were writing about technology, where you have a finite number of words to deliver a message and make sure that's succinct, but everyone that reads it or everyone that's there and is listening gets the key messaging across in that finite time or finite resource. It's really, and it's a really complex and
1: nuanced thing to talk about an incident, because particularly when there's been a lot written about it, that isn't actually correct. And then hmm. particularly when we have done a very poor job of communicating about it as a company. And so it's, it's really quite difficult. You need a minimum of 20 minutes to be able to explain what happened Yeah. And, and it's one of those things that, that, yeah, I think that I do have some ability to take. I sat in the sock with the guys while they were responding to it, almost with a view to this being something that was going to be required and worked on, worked with the head of cyber defense on their internal kind of um, report that, that they put together so that I could then create an artifact
2: from that could help explain it for our customers. Because it's, it was certainly something that blogs and tweets weren't doing it justice. And that was felt across the industry. There were a lot of people that were. You're waiting with bated breath for some form of personality behind the, the explanation rather than a static blog or, or a static post. And as you started coming out and some others started coming out and talking about it, it really picked up the tone for customers, for technologists who, were, who, who weren't impartial to, to Okta, that, that was part of their go to market. They started seeing the empathetic side to it. They started seeing the strategic side to why and understanding the why, which was really critical, which doesn't translate in a blog with an incident that, you know, might have seemed benign at the time, but has longer, longer stretch of impact. Yeah, it has, it has
1: ongoing kind of trust issues, doesn't it? Like, because of, if you only read one news story on March 22 or March 23, you've probably come out with a very different perspective of someone who's as invested as you and actually paying attention to it. So it's a complex, it's a complex thing to, to handle I've learned a lot from it. I feel again, it's one of those things that I think I've said before you, there was no playbook for something like this in terms of, and a threat actor making claims that, that weren't true, but we couldn't, we weren't in a position to entirely say what the facts were from, from day one. So it's, it's a pretty difficult, difficult thing to manage, but I think we're getting, we're getting a lot better at it. We're still, we're still very constrained. The three of us are very lucky to be sitting here in Australia, being able to talk openly about things the way we can in the United States, probably can't deliver the kind of presentation I delivered at also because there's ambulance chasing folks that will seek to to sue a company for any admission of guilt or making mistakes. And we're in, in Australia, we're the kind of culture that says if you cop to the mistakes you've made and you talk about how you're going to learn from them and what you're going to put in place to learn from them, it's very trust enhancing activity. People say, if that's the way you respond to this, I'm confident you'll respond really well to any future event that might involve me. Unfortunately, that's not a, that's not a global, that's not a globally consistent thing. There are many places in the world where. Copying to the things you got wrong is legally uh, problematic.
2: Yeah.
0: Right. You mentioned before the trust erosion, but I actually think the way that it was handled speaks volumes and even says more than what happened because it's actually trust instilling Uh, to your point, just then the the way that the response occurred, I saw some information about your statement being, let's understand the technical impact first, and then let's look to communicate clearly and Mm. quickly. And I think the whole behavior around that journey said a lot more to the world than what actually happened. And even highlighting misinformation warfare and, excuse my French, but it actually just shits me, the sensationalism behind the media and just the viralism of ridiculous tweets or non-factual statements that can just spread like wildfire. So, and it's just like, no wonder the world we live in is so complex and confusing for people. Because look at what we're navigating every day.
1: Yeah, it was, it was a little bit disheartening for me as well, because in those first few hours where I'm obviously not in a position to be paying a lot of attention to Twitter, gotcha. <laughs> i got bigger concerns going me. back on, yeah, one, once you start seeing the news stories, the news headlines coming out, and then you're going back over Twitter and stuff. I was, I saw people that I have a huge amount of respect for that I've followed for a long time, making some claims that were, there were obviously, everyone was coming from. Uh, a point of not having enough information, including us to a degree. Yeah. yeah. So it was, it was one of those eye-opening things where I started assessing my role as a journalist for many years in talking about events that had occurred at third parties where I obviously don't have the full information. I'm a journalist reporting on it and just reflecting on how many people did I give a bad day to <laughs> and and did I present the right amount of, of empathy at that time as well? Because the, the customers. The targets of attacks and then the, the customer, in this case, let's say the the customers of the targets of, of an attack, they go through some pretty, pretty extreme circumstances during that period. We had customers who you think about the way to, the t- the way in which, the time at which the threat actor published the screenshots that purported to observe interactions mm. on our customer system, on our customer support system. And our, we were responding to that very quickly because about half of the security team is in Australia. So we're. We're already kicking into gear, but we can't make some of the key executive decisions until we've woken up the most senior stakeholders in the company who are mm. primarily overseas. There were some customers then in, rolling into Europe who this information was out there, public domain for long enough that they started feeling like they needed to take actions. They needed to start doing extreme things like reset passwords or factors or things that they absolutely did not need to do, but it was just in that, that, that environment of panic. And and I think I often say that there was no alternative, there was no parallel way that this would have played out. The the way the threat acted did this was—you got to hand it to them, I guess. They they controlled the the oh yeah, they they published some screenshots four hours after they said they hacked Microsoft and stole source code. So they are already the editors of every technology and security publication wants a story on Lapses. Because four hours earlier they said that they stole source code from Microsoft and hash passwords from LG, and it's only a few days earlier that you know they've they've claimed to to have stolen considerable volumes of data from Samsung and Nvidia and others so yeah. there's they are like they're the hot topic of the day, and then they say we had access to the back end of one of the world's most important providers of authentication it's It was just a recipe for, for success and Even though in the screenshots, anyone who, I think anyone with a critical mind and and a lot of my friends in threat intelligence who obviously don't have anything to do with Okta said, wait a second. The screenshot showed an event happening in January. If they had genuinely had direct access to Okta between January and now, we would know about it. Yeah. They would have acted on that information. That certainly the track record of that actor Two, You could see that they were using some kind of, they're abusing some kind of thin client remote session management tool to be able to get those screenshots, which again, pointed to this is not direct authenticated access to Octa, this is something else, but to everyone who's got a one hour deadline to write a story that brings in eyeballs, that's a level of nuance that it's just a step too far. And you had journalists asking the threat actors, do you still have access to Octa now? And they were saying yes. And that was the thing that was. That was mind boggling for us in response, because we have no evidence of them ever having access.
0: Yeah, yeah. So, so we're it's a blatant lie. Yeah. But can
1: you also worry in the security incident playbook says the adversary might not, might know more than you. And quite often they do quite often. The adversary knows a great deal more than you do as a defender. And you have to respect that in the way that you communicate about it. You don't want there to ever be a possibility that you put information forward and then have the threat actor came back, come back and contradict your version of events. Because that is as bad as it can go. In our case, we probably weren't aggressive enough about coming forward and saying this doesn't look right to us. We don't. <laughs> there, there has to be an explanation for these screenshots, and we had a fair idea within a couple of hours because there was a detection event of associated with an attempted Octa account takeover back around that date from that third-party supplier. So we had a fair idea. But it didn't explain the screenshots. We knew that there was some activity on, on that third party network back at that time, but it didn't explain the screenshots. It didn't explain or, and for us, we'd been assured for several months that there was no impact from that event on the third party to, to Okta and its customers. So that was the piece that we, that was the, the gap that we had to fill, but it took too long to fill that gap. And in the meantime, that just created a void that the threat actor themselves could insert themselves into. And they could, as you say, Ben, they could control the
2: narrative. They had an open telegram channel that was feeding a direct response to journalists, to the people listening that, as you said, had such a speaker or a megaphone by that point. One question for you internally, how did you keep the calm and control the internal narrative within your team, noting that the actor had that megaphone publicly and it was being criticized externally. How did you control that narrative internally to keep calm? Not a lot of problems with the security team themselves. There's a lot of people who've been through a lot of incidents before that, that I don't think, I don't think there was ever
1: an issue there. There was an issue out in the field though. Definitely in the first few days, getting the message out to the, the support and sales function, and then all of the third parties that help Okta's mission that really need to be armed with information very quickly because they've got stakeholders calling them on the phone saying, I place my bets with you and Okta, and now it looks like Okta is letting us down. Mm. And I don't think we did a very good job of that, Ben. And it's one of the massive takeaways from us. It's one of the things that we're reviewing at the moment is how do you make sure that they are, are getting the right information very quickly so that they can refute some of these claims? Because there's a bunch of folks that want to be your champions out there in the field and, and you need to arm them with the information they need. It's again, it's a very difficult, it's, it's not, I don't think blogs and tweets are the right way to do that. That's what we've realized because you're always having to then be careful about the, the legal ramifications of what you're saying. Are you showing your hand to the threat actor? A whole bunch of other considerations. Whereas we, we, we needed to have better ways to communicate with our stakeholders. And I think that's a lesson for everyone from something like this, when they're, when a threat actor is overstating their access. And you need to make sure that you're correcting the record in almost real time. How, how do you make sure that the people that, that your champions have the right information inside the company? I think Todd, the CEO recognized this was a gap relatively early on. I think within a few days, he was sending a daily update to staff. A few days later, it became a video update and like, it was obviously exhausting. The incident was exhausting all of his day, but he was devoting at least a few hours of it to staff every day, just to make sure that we didn't want our folks out in the field to think the worst because they are, they are our connection point to our customers. They're they're the people that are there to reassure our customers. So yeah, it was very interesting from that perspective in that first week or two afterwards, my team fielded over 200 one-on-one phone calls with customers. And that's, that doesn't represent probably one tenth of the customers that inquired, but the ones that. That where we had to talk them off a ledge. And so, yeah, it became, and then Todd and Freddie and D- David Bradbury, the global CISO, so they were pulling together uh, panels of customers after a short amount of time, 25 and 30 at a time, because we realized we needed this one-on-one touch point because trying to control the narrative through media and social media, et cetera. At that point, we'd lost the battle. I mean, we'd lost the battle pretty much.
0: What were those responses from the customers and those more intimate conversations, Brett, I, I'm sure that tabletop exercises don't necessarily gives you that level of preparedness you can ever expect in any type of scenario like this and particularly the reflective point around lessons learned really crucial mm. so how was that all interwoven into some of those more intimate conversations and and the feedback as well from those customers
1: the conversations always started pretty badly you know they would start with on an explanation for what's going on and and typically they would be able to quickly articulate to us where they're feeling the pressure it wasn't just that they were worried about whether they were impacted or Octa was impacted. It was about Brett, put yourself in my position right now. I'm the chief security officer of a large bank. I have a board who's just read in the newspaper that Octa has been hacked. Mm. Understand where I'm at at the moment. That would be where the conversations would start. I would t- talk them through what we knew and what we didn't know. That would be probably the first part of the conversation. That would very quickly get them to a point where they realized that there was really no impact. But it takes time to, to get through that. Then we would move on to plan ahead, the action plan. And over time that was, it started from us even asking them, here is what we're thinking of doing to remedy this and getting their feedback on it. And then it it became a little more, we're hearing the same themes consistently about what customers wanted and what we as a security team had in some cases always wanted (laughs) and. So we, we started pulling together a bit of an action plan and, and then that was formalized into a document that was sent out to any of the customers that inquired in the end, along with a forensic report to show them here's a third party validating the, the conclusions of our investigation. And the action plan is usually the thing, like you say, Ben that's, oh no, sorry. It was, it was yourself, Gabe. I think that's where the, where the, where the trust, the trust enhancing behavior is that they can see that even though it was a, a very minor incident, The fact that we're willing to make so many changes in a short amount of time demonstrates that we absolutely realize how critical we are to our customers and that they, that we do put them in this very difficult situation when there is an an event that has been just disclosed like this in the public. So yeah, it was, I think the action plan was really critical in, in most cases, customers have said, Hey. I wish some of my other vendors would maybe take the same approach for far more significant incidents.
0: Mm. Yeah. I believe you almost outlined there, Brett, a bit of a blueprint that a lot of organizations or people who experience a, a breach or a compromise or misinformation warfare or some sort of public domain, how would you even describe it, event in a similar scenario, which is have that over communication back to customers but the preparedness around let's get people in a room let's understand the scenario you're having having those come to you i'm feeling this immense pressure from the board and here's my responsibility back to my own organization here's what i'm experiencing and you took that very empathetic lens as well to really consume that but then outline what you knew and what you don't know and then really consolidating all of that into an action plan that includes all the key themes and the remediation but importantly then disseminating and validating the report to say, here are the findings, here are the lessons learned, and here's what we've done about it. And then just really what underpins all of that is that continuous feedback loop as well. So it was almost like the the golden five-step process into an experience, what potentially could also be used in the future, but it's always really d- dynamic and really fluid. And for me as well, what really underpins a lot of this is really the psychological element and the human element to things that happen of this nature, because that's really... F- What's first and foremost, the most critical thing here, we all live in quite a dynamic world and it's the relationships that we have between all of us internally, externally, personally, professionally, that is crucial in actually maintaining the integrity of those trust implications and the future of what you you guys are building at Okta and all the stakeholders that come in and out of that in, in such a fluid nature. So it's a pretty remarkable thing that has been undertaken and I would even say a remarkable plan that can be you in the future as well.
1: Yeah. It's been good for me in one sense in that I came into a role that was customer facing for the first time in January. And I, I said to, 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 to my boss at the time, just going to take me a while to get around the region and meet everyone and know who they are. Yeah. there's nothing like an incident to to me to to have me meet everyone. That overpromised now because I've met so many of them in such a short amount of time, and and, and there's so much I want to do. But it's it, I, I guess these kind of events are good. It Do have plus side on the end of it in that it does bring a lot of these stakeholders together in a more meaningful way than just simply a contract negotiation or renewal time when we talk about the security schedule in the contract. It's not a meaningful conversation. This is a far more meaningful conversation. And uh, yeah, I, one of the incident responders actually said to me, well, one of the guys here in Australia at the time, he said, Brett, if there's anything that, that, that you can help us with out of this, I'd like to have something like what the ANU produced after their intrusion. Do you guys remember that ANU yeah, report that came fantastic. out? fantastic. And at the time they really hadn't been much like that, particularly when there was a state backed actor involved where they just came out and said, here's everything we know. Yeah. And again. They have the blessing of being a university in Australia where the environment is such that's, that's not such a legally challenging document to produce, but yeah, wouldn't you like to have, I would like to, to live in an environment where we can always do that and just, and share very openly. It's it, the CEO of Okta describes it as, a, as an information log jam. That basically you have, when there are third parties involved in our case, there's a third party support partner that's had a, what we thought was a compromised account, but something mm-hmm. quite larger in the end. They're not passing on information to us, our customers. Some of them who have built an identity infrastructure for other entities. We're all taking, trying to understand the full impact of the event before we pass information along to the next party. And by the time it gets to the party that it impacts almost the most, the end customer, there's been way too much time passed for trust to be, to have been eroded. And and so this is an industry wide problem. We tried to, we thought we were trying to set a new precedent. During the incident, when David and Todd decided that we would tell the world that because there was a threat actor on this third party's network for these five or six days, that if there had been any request from their network to an After application during that period of time, whatever one of our customers was looked up during that probably support legi- uh, legitimate support interaction. That we would then notify those customers that they were exposed to a third party network that we didn't trust for that period of time. So that's where we came out we said 366 organizations. We're telling them you, your account wasn't compromised. There was never an account takeover event. We were never compromised, but we can't say with a hundred percent certainty that a threat actor didn't view a legitimate support interaction that involves your organization. And when we published that, I, I naively thought that would be. That people would turn around and say, oh, that's good of Octa." And there has been no compromise events against these customers, but they're potentially impacted because of what we don't know. What could the adversary have viewed from their vantage point? And instead it became headlines of 366 Octa customers hacked. And that was really tough. It was like, and that was also clearly for me, I was going back over the blog saying, what did we get wrong when we communicated it? Other words, potentially impacted too confusing is this too nuanced for people to really understand what we're saying so sometimes when you try to do something that's that demonstrates transparency it can actually blow up in your face and that really blew up for us so did todd saying from the very first tweet we knew about an ad- about some kind of event at that third party back in january because we we were the ones that alerted them to it we saw an attempted takeover of an, of an Octo account and naturally the, the the first question from everyone including from me was wait don't we have a duty to disclose if we knew something then? The limits to what we knew then was you've got to compromise Microsoft 365 box on your network. And as you, you and I know that's an everyday occurrence for every other organization. So it's as we did the necessary. We did the minimum you'd expect to follow up and say, we need logs. We need an incident report. We need something so that we can be assured that we can close this ticket. Yeah, but, but it was, there was a discussion in the room I'm told about, maybe we shouldn't mention that we already knew something about this because It only raises that question. And and every time that kind of thing was raised, the CEO would say, no, we're not hiding. Yeah. We're not hiding anything. Yeah. We have to set the parameters for people to help them understand their potential exposure and no, we're not withholding any information like that. So again, it hurt us, (laughs) but, but it's a values that he set for the company that he wants to live up to. And, um, and it just means that we have a lot more of these one-on-one conversations to have afterwards yeah. to, to explain
2: it
0: away. At least it keeps it meaningful, Brett. And I actually am a big fan of the transparency. So
2: Agreed. There, were, there were two camps uh, as a result of this, from the incident occurring to still today, there, and we've carried an undertone in this conversation of empathy. So there was one camp for empathetic approach to it. And the other camp was raise the flag. Let's just broadcast or rebroadcast everything that's out there and throw an opinion underneath it, which as you quite rightly said was, was fairly unqualified. What's your thoughts on an empathetic approach to cybersecurity? Do you think we have enough of it now? And how would you offer up advice to the listeners on bringing empathy into your conversations daily, not just with customers, but internal staff to provide that message of an empathetic approach to cybersecurity? I'm going to sound hypocritical, no matter what I said, because I'm a former, what I say, because I'm a former journalist. So (laughs) a lot of the
1: behaviors that we, that you just talked about, like recycle what has been reported and add an opinion under it, I'm sure I've been guilty of it and it's only through an incident like this, that you, that you step back and say, what are the impacts of, of that kind of behavior? I think what's, what is important is that we find ways to tell the story of the frontline security professional that is in front of this. So the cyber defense team, half of which are here in Australia, they barely slept for quite a considerable period of time. Their passion and enthusiasm for their job really came out. They wanted so desperately to pull all the pieces of the puzzle together and then feed that information to us to take it out into the field and it almost offended them when they read the news stories that, that, that were just believing the words of the threat actor or some kid on Twitter and it would frustrate them because if they're losing sleep over this. They really want to, they really want their work to, to be in the service of reassuring people. And so we had, there's been several times where we've had discussions about if only it were easy to get their voice, to ha- have their voices broadcast. I can't remember which conference it was that I saw a couple of years ago. I was working at Risky Business and I watched this conference I don't know, presentation. I want to say it might've been the KiwiCon, but there was a guy that had worked an incident at, now when you see on stage an incident responder or a head of incident response, get up and talk about a serious incident, one that made all the headlines where the regulators came down and he posed fines where real, really serious consequences from the incident. And you hear them talk about the impact on their personal and professional lives. Mm. from that six to 12 month experience, you look at that and you wonder why anyone would sign up for that gig. Like it's, it, it has a considerable toll on, on people. Now this incident didn't, you know, it was contained to a few weeks, but if you're talking about an incident where, you know, your organization was thoroughly rinsed and, and you had lawsuits and regulatory fines and everything. It, it, it just, you just relive the nightmare for nine months in a year. And I feel like having those practitioners stand up on stages and tell their story. I know that pr- presentation really had an impact on me at the time and impacted the way in which I reported about security incidents because it was confronting. To hear him talk about his relationship with his spouse and kids being impacted by a security incident and the way in which it was the way in which the organization was publicly damned over it. So yeah, I think empathy is an important thing to, to to try and instill in our community. I, I think that the community is, is, has some inbuilt protections in the sense that we're a smallish community, particularly in Australia, and we do tend to take care of each other a little more here than other places. I think so, but more broadly, I think on a, on a broader basis, I think you're absolutely right, and that's the only way I can think to, to improving that is just to get more practitioner stories being told. Do you guys have some some ideas on this? I've
2: got plenty, I've got plenty, Brett. But I agree. For me, it's less about it's less about broadcasting the stories. It's more about preventing the requirement to broadcast the story. Yeah. Uh, so for that to occur, we need to be more transparent between the community sharing that, oh, that was, that, that took a toll on me. And as you said before, one of your staff, they got disgruntled, not disgruntled, but that their voice wasn't heard at the level they would, they would have liked. But we need to have more of those internal conversations as a community on, on letting them be heard, uh, and that it's okay that happens. We talked about on a previous episode about the psychosocial impacts on, on a breach or an event or what have you. So there's. It's not just the people on the front line, it's their families who are affected because it takes a toll on them mentally to get rid of or to move forward. And the people that, that had the breach occur to them, but we've got to understand that this is going to happen for the foreseeable future. There's going to mm-hmm. be breaches. It's a scalable, whether it's on a high scale or a low scale, it's still an event. And we need to be empathetic that it is going to occur. It's about how we understand and level set with the emotions of the people that's impacted beyond that. Yeah, and, and sometimes it just requires a little patience. It's
1: it's perfectly reasonable that we expect. As a journalist, I used to, I used to hit the corporate comms teams and you know, the PR teams of companies that had just experienced an incident and say, look, I'm sure you're going through quite a lot at the moment, but there are some real missing pieces here and how this happened. and here is my deadline. And it's pretty hard in the heat of a, of a battle like that to, to even, it's hard to prioritize a, a journalist when you've got thousands of customers asking for information, but ironically, it's the journalist that's probably the easiest, fastest conduit to all of those, to all of those folks. So we have, I've had some interesting conversations with former journal know, colleagues and, and, and friends in the past few weeks as we've come out the back end of this around what are the right, what, what are the right obligations around correcting the record? For example, if you've published a story that is based on a certain set of material. And then an investigation closes and shows that those, that there were misstatements of fact, not malicious misstatements of fact. It's just that what was known day one compared to what was known day three, et cetera. And some feel that it's a journal of record. What was known on that day is what matters. We're under no obligations to correct the record because those events didn't happen. It's, it's an interesting set of, set of discussions to be ha- having at the moment, just to understand like, how are we as a community going to get better at this?
2: Yeah. One thing we did in 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 the military, and Gabe, you'll probably roll your eyes. Now working outside of the military, I understand why. Um, and we called it a hot wash. Uh, and after a kinetic action, or if after any event that occurred, and it was deemed, or well, it wasn't deemed, it went on. A, and when an event occurred that raised the profile of adrenaline in your system, uh, whether that was a kinetic action, whether that was an insertion, or anything that occurred that raised that level of of adrenaline. We did a hot wash after, and it was a chance for everyone in the team to sit down, small teams, small environments that I worked in, but everyone was emotionally available to release what happened, how they felt. And it was a way of broadcasting that to a wider cast so that you felt okay in the moment. And I think, I don't think I know that helped a lot of my former colleagues and and brothers and sisters in the military to be able to overcome some of those inner demons at the time that could have taken over. We called that a hot wash. Everyone sat down and it was done in a very open forum, but it was okay to be emotional. It was okay to do that. Now you think about some of the people I worked with in the special forces, you would never think of those people to come off a kinetic action or an operation like that and be emotionally available because you're so good at compartmentalizing. But it was at that point that you were able to share your feelings and be embraced as a team for what had just occurred and how you felt in that environment. Everyone felt different. It might've been some of the bigger events where it was okay. Most of us felt okay with that because we trained, but it was the smaller ones where you realize that people have different subset of emotions that have the chance to take over. So the hot wash was, it was really valuable because it allowed everyone to be open and communicate that emotion as a result of the, the predicating uh, operation. That's fascinating. and And how? Is, is that a recent phenomenon in, in, in the military or is that something that's been there for, for quite a time? Good question. I actually don't have the history behind it. Gabe, you might know more, but for me, I worked there from the, the early 2011s through, and it was always a thing with the teams I worked. I was pretty fortunate enough to have leadership that were open to understanding different levels of emotion and that emotionally charged teams were not effective and to achieve a state of flow as a team where you inherently trust left, right, forward and rear, you needed to understand the emotions that could be charged behind that. So I was pretty fortunate, but I'm not sure of the history behind it.
0: There's a lot of brilliant concepts and methodologies out of military. And perhaps that's why we see a lot of translation into the corporate sector too. Spoken of, Yeah,
1: I can see, I could see definitely application. Yes. Yeah. Obviously, obviously the, the emotions aren't nearly where they would be after kinetic action, but, but the. But the concept would be very applicable. And also it, it could address lingering resentment between teams. we, we have post-incident reports and post-incident reviews, but they are very, they're, they're not really based on how everyone felt at a given moment in time. They're more about what action took place. How did we respond? How could we respond better? What are we going to do different next time? It's, it's a little, yeah, it's a little bit more tactful, operational rather than thinking about the human side of it.
0: There's certainly a lot of power in coming through adversity, no matter what it is, it strengthens strengthens the team or it strengthens the next outcome. And a hot wash is a great example of that. We are almost protecting the psychology and the emotional states and bringing it back to human centricity. So Mm. even the stories before Brett about the incident responders on the front line of breaches in an organization, they go through that turmoil as well, just as rightfully so as any other incident, any other event, because everyone has different experiences and different emotional states and different ways of coping, so it's also like you can have the formality and the reporting structures and the recap of the events and the action plan, but it's also just as importantly is the parallel track to say, how are we all feeling? Should we sit down and put our arms around each other? And speak about it. Are you ready to do that? Or is there some sort of ongoing hot washing that needs to occur?
2: We did. The, we always did the, the, after action reviews and, and everything like yeah. that, as you mentioned as well, Brett, which are equally as important, but the emphasis on the emotional side of it comes out in that hot wash where there are a statement of facts, the reports, they're all statements of facts. What's happened, what are we doing about it? But it's the hot wash that really gets the, the it, it's hard to provide a statement of facts based on everyone's individual emotional state at a point in time. So you still go through the entire operation, the entire event, whatever that is in a timeline based scenario, but give everyone a chance to describe how they felt at the time, what made them make that decision. It gives them retrospective thought or of the, the events that occurred. And then they're, they're then able to share their emotions behind it. So then you get an understanding of, was it an emotionally charged decision? Was it as a result of a decision made by someone else earlier in that point of time that affected that change in your mental state? Just a good way to understand the team a lot more as well. Obviously,
1: it would provide opportunities for personal reflection as well. Just hearing others. Sometimes you almost need to have a shared experience with another person to better understand the way, the way you, the way you were behaving in response to an event. So yeah, there's a a lot that can come from that. We were pretty fortunate that the cyber defense team came together for an office only a couple of weeks ago, which was, a, which was broadly planned around that time, but maybe shifted around a bit post this incident, but that was fortunate because one of the hard bits, obviously about the COVID operating environment was a lot of people in cyber defense spread across the world had never met in person before. And particularly after coming through this incident, being able to sit down in person and talk about it was, was pretty awesome. And just to be in the same physical room as as Yeah, because we are moving into this world with kind of 24 seven cyber defense being a requirement for a lot of organizations. So you have a geographic spread of people and there's only so much you can do on Zoom. That's for sure.
0: Any questions you want to ask us, Brett?
1: Oh, I want to go back and watch all of your previous episodes now. (laughs) Yeah. That's been a really engaging conversation.
0: We get pretty deep. We get pretty quickly into deeper meaningfuls. That's for sure. Yeah. I enjoy them.
1: Not not expected, but really pleasant. I feel like, I feel like I should have a glass of wine in my hand. <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
2: it's uh, this may look like water, but it's potentially not.
0: <laughs> Brenda, there's a lot that you spoke through before, which resonate with me because I actually love the criticality of information mm. as well as empathy being an undertone to this conversation. Information is just as equally there. And I think I remember saying to Ben in one of my global perspective ideas and where we can take the future and technological advancements is like, how can we create a product or some sort of mechanism to actually validate information as it flows through our world and all the big network of nodes that exist. And you were speaking about the reflection internally at Okta around how can we communicate better to the field or quicker? And there's a whole decision-making loop that comes with that. The time payoff versus is it better to wait or whatever the case is. So. There's a lot there for me that I'd love to unravel in in the future. Just the criticality and the viability with information itself is so important in where we're going because the world is changing so rapidly and socially, economically, technologically, it's all changing and advancing so quickly. It's like, how do we bring those reflections back to the core and even as individual humans and our own values and decisions and make sure they were looking after each other, but also protecting the integrity of the information. It's probably even a cool concept, even associated with InfoSec and cybersecurity. So very interesting to me there.
1: Yeah, it's super, super interesting. I think most people in cybersecurity care a lot about the integrity of the information. Like they, they, that's why we have such fierce arguments about it. <laughs> Sometimes and, and it's been really interesting to see this entire subset of our our sector emerge around disinfo and into entire categories of, of expertise around organized, there's a a technical term for it. It's like an organized disinformation campaign. And you have
0: that propaganda, Brett?
1: (laughs) Yeah, basically. And yeah, the, well, no, the the social networks call it organized synthetic information, something of that nature, but it's trying to lay a distinction between uh, a level of, yeah, I I think it's about, they, they need a technique to be able to, have a defining criteria by which content is moderated or, or removed from their platforms. And so they have to be really precise about their language in ways that maybe I don't, it's amazing that there's this entire field that has to focus on that now.
0: Uh, Yeah, And rightfully so, because back to even information warfare, like it's disinformation warfare. Yeah, is getting into the psyche and that the psychosocial element now to say there's actually just, this is all incorrect. Look at the weeds of what we're dealing with and distinguishing between what's factual and what's not could actually be what ends up impacting someone in their personal lives. So it's a very important topic to be discussing.
1: Absolutely. And I think we, we have a, a media environment that, that isn't, that isn't conducive to reviewing, reviewing information. With, with any level of patience or diligence, because the, it's the business of media that has unfortunately mm. changed. And we're at, we're at a point in time now where getting good quality information sometimes has to come at some cost because like I was saying earlier, when I first started working with risky beers and Pat said, it, it requires someone to be paid full time, just to be looking at weeding out all the noise. And you can imagine that this is going to become pretty, I think it's going to become more and more critical for. Every security organization is, it's a function of threat intelligence, I think, but there is a little more to it in terms of understanding the impact of what information is in the public domain and how trustworthy it is and how much you're relying on that information to make decisions
2: about your security. It's almost a subset of threat intelligence. It?
0: Well, it's yeah.
2: A whole other conversation. This is a whole other podcast episode. Brett says, yeah. says <laughs> would you another invite?
0: <laughs> We're going to need to get you back on that one, Brett, <laughs> but let's just, it's intelligence for sure. It's like. A live living, breathing intelligence map. Let's open source it, throw it in there (laughs) because yeah, what's in the public domain might necessarily be really that worthwhile for decision-making. Absolutely.
2: All right. We're going to ask the big question. What's the big one? (laughs) So every episode, before we wrap up Brett, we tend to ask our guests for their best dark mode story. Uh, So it can be anything related to dark mode. It can be whether it's, it's something you've done with a dark side to it. It's, it doesn't have to be incriminating. Jeez. But it, it could also be like a platform-based dark mode instance. I always talk about how my my conversations with customers it always begins with the materialistic side. That is, do you have dark mode? <laughs> as as materialistic as it is, it's a first question that comes up, in even the biggest enterprise customers. So, uh, point. <laughs> yeah, it's a selling point. Have you got a dark mode story, Brett? Oh, struggling. I'm struggling. <laughs> might be the lack of sleep.
0: It's the red eye flight for me. <laughs>
1: yeah, what I, dark, What's my dark mode story?
0: Um, I, I don't have a particularly dark background either. What yeah, about I'm something
2: sorry. you've talked about in risky biz or or anything you've written about? that You thought oh, I should, probably shouldn't be writing about this. Is a bit too dark for me. Or what
0: comes to what comes to your mind, Brett, when you think about dark mode?
2: I, I fairly literal dark mode in in software. I was about to say oh, we've just lost breast connection there. This dark is mo- his dark mode story. This, this is, is dark mode story. Mo-
0: mo-
2: <laughs> <laughs> this could be the best dark mode story of the podcast. <laughs> Oh, I wish I had a good one for you. When was the first time you experienced dark mode? How about that? On a blackboard? the first time I experienced dark mode? Do you remember That's the first? It was boring. boring. I think it was,
1: I think it was buddy. It was Twitter or Slack or something boring. I'm really not that interesting. Am I? <laughs> no,
0: it is not that boring because if those applications have dark mode, all of them switch over. Yeah. For sure. <laughs>
1: <laughs> it is no, interesting, think- isn't it? Why, why do we? Why do we, why do we prefer it so much? I guess we're spending too much time in front of our devices and we need, need to stop having this, uh, ridiculous glare at us. It's
0: not as harsh uh, on the eyes.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It's just uh, focus. <laughs> what are some of the other dark, tell me some other dark mode stories other people have told, cause it might spur something in my.
2: We've had a couple. So some of the ones was actually John's was funny. John Stern was on the last episode and he talked about how him and his mate wanted to be roomies at university together. Uh, so they filled out the application online, but what they did was they worked out there was a, there was four or five different dorm facilities. They wanted to be in the best one that had the athletes in it because it had the best facilities. And so they put in there, it said your, your priority of dorm allocations They put in, uh, the top one, then they filtered out the next three ones. They knew they were never going to get like the female only lines, the the female athlete village, and then something else. And the next one was, we want a smoking room so we could get a room that was for 10 people, but only for the two of us. The next one was, so they essentially created the (laughs) application,
0: Yeah.
2: (laughs) yeah to get into the room that they wanted. And they ended up with a room by themselves. Everything worked out perfectly, but they, uh, they socially engineered it so that it came to fruition. Another guest talked about how Chase Cunningham, how they were doing a physical pen test on, on a building and to get into the server room that had automatic door openers on the back end so that people carrying servers, the door would automatically open for that without the requirement for fingerprint scan on the way in, they would lay underneath the door and blow up party balloons and then let the party oh. balloons go
1: into the <laughs> room. Wrong oh, night. Nice. So there's a
2: bit of like
1: cheats and hacker craft in there as well. Oh, and you ask this in every episode. So it's going to be a bit odd that you don't have one, but, um, I'm just really not that craft. It's got no technology bent though. That's why most, most of the way I've cheated in life have been have had nothing to do with, with tech, but I, I managed to live in large warehouses next to central station, sorry, Hills for 14 years up until not that long ago, up until about four or five years ago. And these were commercial leases. And the idea was you'd sign the lease to say that you're going to use it for a business purpose. And as long as you never caused the landlord any problems, they never asked any questions. So they never set foot in where we lived and we built these ladders up to loft beds and had various flatmates living in there. And the two spaces were big enough that one of them I turned into a live music venue that I ran for 11 years until COVID because can't pack a hundred people in a small warehouse in the middle of a pandemic. So yeah, this was in Sydney and it was really interesting because every year I would get a note from the city of Sydney council asking me what commercial purpose I was using these warehouse spaces for. And I always found it funny because um, most of the city of Sydney calendars had been to my live music venue for oh. a show. So they knew very well what we were using it for.
0: <laughs>
1: yeah, uh, But you know, the official line had to be that it was all seen, you know, seen, evil, evil, right? You, the arts needed a home. It needed a place. Where you could make lots of noise and next essential stations about as good as it gets for that, if we'd done it as a fully licensed venue or something, it wouldn't have been sustainable for pa- paying the acts. We gave hundred percent of the proceeds to the acts that performed there and all worked as volunteers. But sometimes you do need to just hack the system a little bit to get outcomes that everyone wants, even though it's probably um, not,
2: not strictly to the letter of the law. That's a great dark mode story, Brett. That's a great Dark Mode story. It's so good. Best actor. Best actor or most famous act? Which one? Oh uh, yeah. Let's go most famous then best, because I'm more interested in best, but the listeners might want to hear the most famous.
1: The first show ever in Australia by this particular artist was when he was 14 and he played in my living room. His name was Ed Sheeran. So his very first show was to 70 people in our, in my little venue. <laughs> and that is it,
0: amazing.
1: And he said at Acer Arena on, on his last tour, like that he was playing to, I don't know how many Maybe it was seventy thousand or something. He was playing to some massive amount of people, and did you know my first show was to seventy people? There's photos of him on the internet. He was just a kid, like he was literally fourteen-year-old little redheaded kid uh, when he walked in. Like, I almost laughed. Uh, I thought this is our act, but the record company that he was working for had brought him over to to put on a showcase. And uh,
0: like my cheeks are hurting so much from smiling. The dark darker <laughs> stories, Brettus. So and then.
1: Good. Uh, but she's the best act. There's so many of them. I'm a huge fan of a lot of independent Australian music that most folks haven't heard of. but William Crichton is an incredible act. If you ever get a chance to see William, if you get a chance to see Geordie Lane, although he lives in Nashville now, but he still tours Australia a lot and Anthony yeah,
2: like Country strings. That's, that's yeah. Cool. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Awesome. And Ant- Anthony Tanon from New Zealand just won the Tate prize two days ago. He used to come and tour um, a lot and his shows were Spellbinding, is that even a word? I'll take They it. were, they, they were stunning, but yeah, look, I could give you guys an entire playlist of underrated Australian acts that can absolutely hold a room in the palm of their hands for, uh, for an hour and that I would fly across the country to see some of these acts. Uh, I'll create one overnight, but I, <laughs> I think I already, I think I already do have a playlist of stuff from the venue that was particularly. We have to share the it. It show, show notes. Let's do it. I'll, I'll send yeah. it through. Here we go. to. <laughs> So it'll be called the high tea something, but I'll flick it through to you.
0: Amazing.
2: We, Pretty good. Wait, we was yours a high tea room? Yeah. Oh, this is a flashback. I went to one of the gigs. Get out of here. Yeah, <laughs> Dude, yeah. get out of here. <laughs> <laughs> oh, this is giving me goosebumps. All right. Was that your place? Yeah. Hibernian house. Wow. That's this is a flashback. Shook. Sure. I you yeah. remember who you saw? Nah, I think it was, uh, I want to say, I want to say like Sultana or someone like that. Did we have
0: Tash Sultana there?
2: It was a while ago. Yeah, it
0: was.
2: (laughs) was, Well, uh, we landed up
1: two years ago and it ran for 11 years. So yeah, it's been, it was there for a while.
0: Look at this. It's like two degrees of separation over here. Oh,
2: It actually gave me (laughs) a jump wrong. Yeah.
0: yeah. (laughs) Yeah. That
2: was, let's come full circle.
0: That's amazing. Thanks so much, Brett, for joining us on Dark Mode. It's been an amazing conversation, very insightful, and even wrapped up with quite left of field and reminiscent topics at the end there. So really appreciate your time and thanks so much again.
2: No worries. Thanks, Gabe. Thanks. Thanks, uh, thanks, Ben. Thanks for inviting me. See you guys. Bye.